Psalm 138. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. Anytime the psalmist mentions or the scriptures mention other gods, I don't know about you, but it makes me a little uneasy because I don't even want to give that much latitude to uh, the falsehood of idols. But for our purposes, understand that what David was contending with was a culture where at its best, Israel still had idols set up most of the time and there was just this lack of purity and focus on the one true God. If you look at the history of Israel coming out of Egypt, come on, what's the first thing they do once Moses isn't there with his restraining uh, ill temper? They build a golden calf and start worshiping it, right? So the, the term is not some kind of an admission on on David's part that there are other gods. There is only one, but there were definitely other objects of worship that were in his view as he made his way through the land, even into his old age when he likely wrote this psalm. Nonetheless, David has gratitude in his heart So he says, I'll give thanks, O Lord, with the entire thing. Before the gods, I sing your praise. The the idea in the church is that ultimately you you would have a, a family of worshipers from kind of a local geography that get together and everybody has this attitude that even if I'm the only one worshiping God in the midst of this people, I will be one worshiping God in the midst of these people. And if you get 30, 40, 50, 100, 150, 200 people with that mindset, I don't care if I'm the only one in this room who's singing with my whole heart to God. I'm singing with my whole heart to God. What you get is an atmosphere of adoration and worship that will actually kind of compel the more reluctant people to want to get into it and start singing and start participating. But everybody has to have their own commitment to God to be grateful. And I think part of the reason, you know, you won't hear Emily or Tim do this I would if I were leading worship um, because I don't, my filter's not as well uh, cultivated, developed as, as theirs is. I would shame you if I were standing here singing and I looked out and you were just doing this. I'd call you out by name, but lucky for you, I'm back there and I can't really see anybody very clearly. The reason I would do that is because I know that a a heart which is not interested in singing praises to God is a heart which, though it find itself in church, has no understanding of God to make it grateful. And it's not a problem of God having not done enough for you. And by the way, I don't have anybody in mind. I'm not even saying, I haven't even observed this in our church. I'm not saying... This is my chance to get whoever, because I don't have anybody in mind who, who I think isn't singing enough. That's not the point of this. The point of this is actually a little bit different. It's that whether we're aware of it or not, the goodness of God has so been poured out in your life to restrain evil and move you in a, in a direction of blessing. Most of us are unaware of how much that's true. 
So if you look at Luke 17 with me, and now the projector runners are off the hook because I don't put the, um, the side references in the presentation. I'm glad you all bring your Bibles just uh, in case things like this happen. I was talking to Andy a few weeks ago when we tried to, uh, I started uh, slyly transitioning to more of a teaching style and less of a preaching style. And he said uh, something to the effect of, like, he hasn't decided whether this is a good idea or not. And I'm with him. Like, I like it for the convenience. It gets everybody engaged in reading. But there's something about the activity of tapping or turning pages to get oriented in the scripture that might be helpful. So anyway, hopefully that gave you time to get to Luke 17, uh, (laughs) verse 11. Stop me if you've heard this one. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance, lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I had the benefit growing up of having seen, is it the Ten Commandments or it's Ben-Hur, having seen Hollywood's portrayal of leprosy. So from an early age, I kind of knew that it was a skin disease. But if you're young and you don't know that, what it is, they called it uh, leprosy. It's a bacterial, I think, or no, it's a viral infection that causes the skin to turn white, flaky, and slough off. And actually your appendages start to disintegrate uh, the longer that you have it. Um, It's treatable nowadays, but back in... Uh, even the time when Jesus was on the earth, it wasn't. I have no idea if it's viral or bacterial, so please don't write a paper based on my sermon about leprosy. Um, So these 10 lepers uh, come up to Jesus and cry out for mercy. Verse 14, it says, When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, <coughs> excuse me, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, this is a complex story. This is not a parable. This is a history. So this actually happened. Jesus is coming into uh, Jerusalem, and he's in between Samaria and Galilee, <laughs> Galilee, Galilee on the road, and uh, these 10 unclean lepers who had been, I mean, they're not welcome in the city. They're, they had to be put out in an encampment uh, so that they didn't infect anybody else with leprosy, uh, approach him and cry out for mercy, calling him by name. So they identify that it's Jesus. And then he gives them a very ceremonial Mosaic law directive. Because if we went back and looked, and we're not going to, but in the Old Testament, God gave clear um, directions for, for if you wake up one morning and you're like, ooh, my skin's a little dusty, you got to go show it to the priest uh, and he's going to put you aside for, for a number of days. I think it was just a week and then he's going to look at it again. If it's gone away, 
you're solid, go wash up, and you can rejoin the rest of society. If it's still there or it's worse, you're going to go away for a few more days. I think it was another week. And then you're going to come back, and he's going to look at it. If it's still there or worse, you're a leper. You're out of the, uh, the, the uh, you know, inner city. It wasn't a city. You know, the roving, uh, I can't think of the word. Tent. Camp, thank you. You're out of the camp uh, until such a time as you are miraculously made clean. And the thing was, you wouldn't have been. But <clears throat> if you did happen to get better, you had to go and show yourself to the priest. The priest was the one who ultimately decided whether you were cleansed or not. So Jesus gives them this very Jewish instruction. <clears throat> go show yourselves to the priest to determine whether they're still leprous. Now, it's a bit silly when you know that you're leprous and you see Jesus and you cry out to him for healing. And he says, go show yourself to the priest. And you're like, okay, but I know I have leprosy. So I, I, people go a little hard on the nine. And I would just like to ease up on them a little bit. They do do the thing Jesus tells them to do. Okay. Uh, I just don't want us to be so pharisaical. Uh, well, they should have come back. All of them. That's true. Once they realized that they were cleansed, it does seem to, Jesus seems to think they should have come back. So no way he was wrong. Um, so the nine go, the one who just so happens is not a Jew, but is a Samaritan. So think about that with me. He's helped to not be obedient to the Mosaic law because they had their whole own version of the Pentateuch that had been sly-dogged to make the, the temple on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. Like they had a different way of looking at things. So he's already you know, going to tend in the direction of not doing covenant uh, uh, ceremonial law stuff. Are you, does that make sense? So I, I appreciate that he comes back, but I don't want to give him so much credit at the expense of the nine who were more kind of programmed to be regimented and do things a certain way. So in the same way, if I come out rocking jeans and a t-shirt on a Sunday morning and you're like, well, I can't worship here. Like you're the one with the problem. If I come out with a three piece suit, and you're like, oh, he's sold out. You're still the one with the problem. They're, they're, both were kind of right. And, and uh, one was more right in this case. But what drives him to come back to Jesus? Do you think the other nine were just ingrates? Or did they not have enough appreciation for who was responsible for the good thing that had happened to them? I'm sure they were grateful. I'm sure they recognized as they were going that their leprosy had been cleansed. But there was one who recognized more specifically that it was Jesus Christ who had done this for them. And so he stops, he turns, he comes back, and he, and he falls on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. <laughs> Jesus healed ten, one comprehends. And my assertion is, if you find yourself having a difficult time, having a grateful heart toward God, it's not that God hasn't been good enough to you. It's that you haven't taught your heart to see how God has been good enough to you. 
part of that is because we tend to value the wrong things, right? I'm, I'm not grateful to God because I didn't win the one point whatever billion jackpot a couple of months ago or any ever, right? No, I am grateful to God because try as I might to screw myself up financially, he has been merciful and gracious and I still have a home and a marriage and kids that love and to a certain extent respect me. That's not because I'm great, it's because God is. So it's a perspective thing. Uh, He goes on, well, let me say this. In Hebrews 12, let's, in fact, let's look there. In Hebrews 12, just to make the point about what our focus should be. Hebrews 12. Twenty-eight. Hebrews twelve twenty-eight says, "Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." What are we supposed to be grateful for? I've got a eternal promise that can't be taken away from me because God secured it in Jesus Christ and has fixed his own glory to my salvation. That's something to be grateful for. Yeah. So verse two, back in Psalm 138, and you're going to have to flip because the projector ain't working. Psalm 138.2 says, I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. That's a mouthful. There's a lot there. Probably could have made this into two or three points. Um, Think with me as I read it again. What's an audience exercise we could do here? All right, I've got it. If you're a visual learner, I want you to picture four squares, right? Or one square split into quarters, right? So like a square with a plus right in, right in the middle. On the top, we're gonna put two different words, one in each square, and on the bottom, we're gonna put two different words, one in each square. If you're not a visual learner, I've left you in the dust. I'm sorry. The activity that the psalmist engages in is I'm going to bow down toward your holy temple and, verse 1, give thanks, right? So we're still thankful, we're still grateful. Now let's put some stuff in these boxes. First, to your name for your, box 1, steadfast love. You with me? So top left corner of your box, you've now got steadfast love. Or if you want to be cute, you can write C-H-E-S-E-D, which is the Hebrew word from which we get steadfast love or covenant faithfulness. Next box, you write that and your faithfulness. So steadfast love. Faithfulness. Now we're going to move down. For you have exalted above all things. Your bottom uh, left box is going to be your name. And then to the, the bo- only remaining box has word, your word in it. 
Right? So you've got steadfast love, faithfulness, name, word. So these are things that we're grateful for and we're recognizing as we move through this that God has so woven all of these things together so that they're, they're symbiotic. They depend on one another. Paramount over all things that we should be grateful is his name and his word. You're like, why didn't we write them in the top then? Because upon these two rest his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We experience God's steadfast love and faithfulness because his name and his word are true. Make sense? Okay. In John 1, we can be helped a little bit. Uh, Yeah, let's go there. That's right. That's what we're doing, folks. We're going to turn to John 1. Um, just for the sake of time, I'm going to cut out six through nine. We'll look at one through five and then 10 through 17. Now that's a lot. That's a whole other sermon that I might be about to preach, but we're going to roll the dice. In the beginning, John 1, 1 was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All right. So we've got the word personified. Anthropomorphized, given body, right? There, now I can move around. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness uh, has not overcome it. So, You've got this idea that John is, um, he's a a bit of a philosopher, right? So what he's doing is he's saying that in the beginning, the logos, the, the words of God organized everything that's in existence, created everything that was created. And we see in Genesis 1-1, which I understand uh, a lot of modern day scholars would say, oh, that's fable written by men that were eating psychedelic plants, right? So John was just playing off of what he found in Genesis 1-1, which was written by guys on psychedelics. In fact, John on the aisle might have been on psychedelics himself. Come on. Think of the organization of this 4,000 years uh, of, of biblical history, beginning with, in the beginning, God spoke, and it was, and it was good. And then in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was what? With God. And the word was God. So in the beginning was Jesus Christ. So as the Lord God spoke 
and things were and things were good. You have the executor of God's spoken word, the word making it so. That's what's being described to us, okay? Uh, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And him was the was life and the life was the light of men. Light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay. Jumping down to 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not. What does that say? All right, we're going we're gonna to work a little harder together. Okay, looking at verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not. Oh, so understandable then that somebody would read Genesis 1 uh, and John 1 and go, hmm, people on psychedelics wrote this. Because that's more likely in the human bent sinful mind then God did this and then told us about it through people. That's not possible, okay? Maybe it's not possible, uh, skeptic, but here's what the Lord says about people that he made. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and yet the world did not, didn't know him. He came to his own. Oh, well, they should have known him, right? Nope. And his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we are the world, but we are not the children. Unless we be in Christ, and then we're sons and daughters. Outside of Christ, nope. We don't have the right to be children of God just because we're people, just because we were made. That says it pretty clearly. You don't have to like it. And if it goes against everything you learned in second grade Sunday school, I don't need you to write your second grade Sunday school teacher's name down and erase it. Because when you're in second grade, maybe it's better to hear that God loves all children. Personally, I'm of the opinion that for children, it may be more important that he know them than they know him to a certain degree, to a certain point. Oh, you're all quiet because you've never counseled the parents of a child who is mentally deficient. But believe me, at some point, to some degree, it is more important that he know them. When you get into adulthood, it's more like you, you got to know him, right? So that's what it said. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. So not just because they were human beings, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So you can jump forward if you want to John 3, the whole conversation with Nicodemus, the pinnacle of scripture, according to the modern evangelical church, verse Verse 16 says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that all who should believe in him might have everlasting life, right? That's a conversation with a guy who goes, how do I be born again? And Jesus says, you've got to be born by the spirit of God because you can't enter your mother's womb a second time. These things are spiritually apprehended and understood, not physically. So in his word, we find 
come on, you'll, you'll, you'll be able to say amen to this, right? This is fundamental. You'll be with me on this if you're uncertain on anything else that I said. In his word, we find the promises of forgiveness, salvation, and new life. Okay? His name is the proof and the seal. So really what you could do is you could take your box that you made <clears throat> where we've got steadfast love, faithfulness, name, and word, and you could write name and word on a, another box above steadfast love and faithfulness, and you could write it on the sides because God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness is surrounded on all sides by the authenticity and accuracy of his word and the power of his name. These things are fixed together inseparably. Philippians 2 proves it. 8, Philippians 2, 8, being found in, in, in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The passage in Psalm says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness for you have exalted above all things your name and your word, not me. <laughs> and that's why we struggle with gratitude, isn't it? We forget, no, no, it's right for me not to be exalted above all things. We prefer it. But it's better that I'm not. And it's better that he is. His name and his word is exalted above all things. For that will drive from me ingratitude. The cure for so much of what ails us is gratitude. The uh, hymn that I don't like the melody or the beat of because I'm not old enough or refined enough to appreciate things like this. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Right? It just sounds like something that should be played on a merry-go-round. But the truth is, it's really quite accurate. Sometimes we need to go through the effort and the discipline of counting them up. Because we tend to focus on only bad things. So let's do that. And does anybody notice how similarly this sermon and psalm is following almost on a parallel track with the last one from last week? And you're all like, no, we've already forgotten that sermon. That's okay. Verse 3, Psalm 138. He hears, okay, now you'll see it. On the day I called, you answered me. Pause. <clears throat> we'll do the second half in a second. On the day I called, you answered me. In Isaiah 65, verse 1, God says this. Listen. Listen to this. This is so good. Isaiah 65, 1. I was ready. This is the Lord speaking. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, 
Here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. <clears throat> so the, the Lord is saying, you were not groping around trying to find me. You were content to pursue your sin and idolatry, and I interrupted you. On the day I called, you answered me, says David the psalmist. In Isaiah 65, 24, God says, before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. On the day I called, you answered me, says the psalmist, the human, the sinner. What does that mean? Well, that means <laughs> that if you, would, if you could unstubborn your heart, unstiffen your neck, and cry out to God for help, it's not like your voice travels at the speed of sound beyond Pluto to wherever the heavens are and reaches the ear of God. The posture of your heavenly father, if Isaiah 65, 24 is to be believed, the posture of your heavenly father is that he is, he, 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 his ear turns to you and he stoops down and hears you the moment that you begin to pray. We'll get into what you pray for, don't worry. My point is simply that what you lack in your life or in your heart in this moment is not a result of God being miserly or turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to you. And the devil would love for you to believe that. And how often does your own heart try to convince you of that? God doesn't care about that. Quit wasting your time. Why are you praying about that? Why bother praying at all? God can't fix this. What you need is money. God can't fix this. What you need is a car that runs. God can't fix this. You should have put a new roof on sooner. God can't fix this. You shouldn't have screwed up and, you know, not done your job very well. God can't fix this. You should have loved your wife better for the last 20 years. God can't fix this. You didn't raise your kids right. Okay, that's fine. I'm the only one that has those thoughts. Or maybe you do and you're just not prepared to admit it yet. But if the heart of God towards you were what you visualize it being, you'd be in hell right now. That's not the heart of God towards you. And there is no problem in your life so insurmountable that the sweet comfort that he offers through the promise of the gospel can't tend it. 3b Psalm 138, second half of verse 3. Psalm 138. My strength of soul you increased. Oh, man. 
So it's not that I won the jackpot. It's not that I got the promotion. It's not that the roof miraculously sealed itself. It's not that the car miraculously started running. Darn it. This is so much better if you can get a hold of it, though. The strength of soul, that, <clears throat> that inner heart, that inner hope thing. Like, hmm. depression has a medicine from God which can be had for the asking. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. A lot of you will know the story of Elijah defeating the prophets of Baal. The whole, let's, well, you build an altar, I'll build an altar, and we'll see whose God shows up and consumes the, the offering, right? And the prophets of Baal dance around and cut themselves and wail, and their God never shows up to consume the offering. Isaiah, Isaiah, Elijah has them dump gallons and gallons of water on his offering, he prays, God consumes it with a tongue of fire, in spite of all the water, right? And then, <laughs> not sure how I feel about this, God kills all the prophets of Baal right there on the spot. No sooner does he get done with this astonishing victory over the false god, Baal, in front of a, an audience, no sooner does that happen than Jezebel rolls in and promises to kill him within 24 hours. And if you look at 1 Kings 19, 4, <clears throat> Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die, saying, it's enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. A broom tree is like a desert shrub that just happens to be big enough that you could sit under it. But you can picture a desert shrub and imagine how much shade it offers. Not a ton. So Elijah flees Jezebel, because uh, this is the human heart. You have a, a, an incomprehensible victory over something, anything in your life that you need to have victory over. And the next thing you do is doubt God to the point you flee into the wilderness and ask him to kill you. We are made of the same stuff, right? Sits down under a broom tree and goes, that's enough. That's enough. Just, can I just die? I'm so tired of everything. 
verse 5, he lay down and slept under the broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Your circumstances can be utterly hopeless, and yet you may take hope if you want to. God finds us beneath the desert shrub, hoping to die, and and he feeds us with such food that we are able to arise and go to his mountain. But you may have to take and eat. And if you don't, your hopelessness is not the result so much of your circumstances as it is your unbelief. And I'm right there with you. It's enough. It's enough. Just kill me. Right? We've all had these moments and might yet have them again before it's all said and done. But where are you right now? You are at church or... Or you're online at church hearing the preaching of the word from somebody who, "Ah, whatever else you want to say, it's not like I don't do this job with a lot of fear and terror over the judgment that I'll be facing if I lie to you. So you're listening to somebody try to unfold the promises and goodness of God in front of you and all you have to do is listen. So if you're sitting under a broom tree emotionally right now, listen to what the Lord is saying to you. Verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 138. Oh man, how is that possible? Well, it just is. It's 11 o'clock. All the kings, whatever, we came here in the snow and the ice. Might as well make the most of it. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. This one was a struggle for me, I'll be honest with you, because I'm like, not even sure the state senate has (laughs) heard and given thanks, let alone all the kings of the earth. Do you think all the kings of the earth are giving thanks to God? Mm-mm. Have they all heard the words of, of the gospel? Have they all heard the words of the Lord's mouth? Hello? Well, possibly. I'd say possibly. Uh, are they singing of the ways, or are they about to, of the Lord? Do they think he's great and his glory is great? Spurgeon, such a jerk, says, Perhaps when the Lord sends us a King David to preach, we shall yet see monarchs converted and hear their voices raised in devout adoration. Spurgeon said that. Just in case I thought I was a good preacher, uh, he was writing into the future 200 years to make me feel this big. Perhaps when the Lord sends us a King David to preach, we shall yet see monarchs converted and hear their voices raised in devout adoration. Well, I don't know about you, church, but I long for the repentance of our government. Uh, 
I think we should pray for preachers to possess the courage to proclaim the truth. Now, I'm going to go a little hard here, and it's going to make you a little uncomfortable, but this is the fact. If uh, you heard good preaching, would you recognize it? It might make you a bit uneasy to hear good preaching. It has often led to persecution. Good preaching will not be politically correct because it's going to call sin by its proper name. And I've heard the report. Oh, James talks about transgenderism a lot. Yeah, I don't stand up here and rail against it like it's the unpardonable sin. I do bring it up and identify it as what it is. It's evil. It's, it's, it's a mental disorder rooted in perversion. It's not an identity thing. It's a perversion thing. Okay, so courageous preaching will be much opposed by the so-called church. Do we want the kings of the earth to comprehend the gospel? Jesus said it like this in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I will never, I hope, preach in such a way as to invite persecution simply because I'm rude or uncaring or unloving. But you can't make the truth nice enough for somebody that wants to live in a lie to appreciate it. So you're going to hear good preaching, and I'm, I'm with you. This is like me too. I hear it sometimes, and I'm like, wish he hadn't said that. That's how it has to be. Verse 6, <laughs> Psalm 138. If you want the government to repent, you're going to have to, Pray for courageous preachers. Verse 6, Psalm 138, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. God thinks much of those who think less often of themselves, not less of themselves. God thinks much of those who think less often of themselves. There are two types of people on the earth, right? There's arrogant and there are humble sinners. Sinners is here, there's arrogant, there's humble. In Psalm 51, uh, David describes what the, what the heart of the humble sinner is like. And he says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. 138.7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies. Your right hand delivers me. <clears throat> so here's the deal, okay? We're almost done. There's only one more verse. Calm down. In the midst, let me go back up and look at the second half of verse 3. <clears throat> you remember this? We, we said, on the day I called you answered me, and then the answer was, in the second half of 3, my, my strength of soul, you increased. And I was like, oh, yep, see, you don't win the lottery. The things don't miraculously fix themselves. And then just to make the point more strongly, in verse 7, it says, though I walk where? In the midst. Yeah. 
You preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. There is no greater enemy for any of us than our own propensity to sin, our own bent, our own iniquity. That's the greatest enemy you have. Though you walk in the midst of all of the temptation to all of the evil that's ever crossed your mind or entered your heart, the promise of God is, I'm not going to let you wallow in evil. So sometimes life gets hard. And why does life get hard? Because you're dumb and you need a spanking to be brought to your senses, period. Your heart runs after things it shouldn't run after. And God goes, ooh, I know how that ends. Let me just correct your course a little bit and brings a little sorrow into your life. Isn't it true? You've been going along so many times in life, just, just doing great, just crushing it. And, and you, you know, your prayer life kind of dwindles and your scripture reading kind of fades out. And then all of a sudden you get this uh, restlessness and eventually that turns into real struggle and depression. And then all of a sudden circumstances in your life start to go a little more poorly. And you're like, maybe I should pray. But you don't because you're stubborn, like I said at the beginning. And so things get a little tougher. Now the car does break down or now you do lose your job or now you do start failing class. Or now your friends inexplicably don't have time for you. And you get lonelier and sadder and lonelier and sadder and poorer and, and struggle at, at new depths every morning when you wake up. And then finally, you bow your rebellious heart before the Lord and cry out to him. And immediately you experience the relief of the soul in the midst of strife. Victory doesn't always look victorious, right? But Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. I had this vision. It was amazing. But to keep me from being too prideful, the Lord also gave me a thorn in the flesh. And I, and I implored the Lord three times, please take this thorn out of my flesh. I don't like it. It hurts. And God said, no. My power and my grace are sufficient for you. In fact, what he says specifically is, my power is made perfect in weakness. So you get knocked down, you get kneecapped a little bit by life, and all of a sudden, instead of running to whatever you want, you are crutching it or wheelchairing it with Jesus walking behind you, and now you are in much better shape than you were when you were sprinting. That's just the truth. You may get sick and not get better. You may suffer at the hands of godless tyrants. Kind of looks like that's where we're headed. You might lose your job and all your possessions, but the fact of the matter is grace is found in the midst, in the midst of trouble. Verse eight, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Philippians 1, 6. Remember this, I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. God is not going to abandon you. He's not going to forsake the work of his hands. He started the work. He's going to finish it. That's why it hurts sometimes. Because he's finishing the work. Amen? All right, let's pray.